Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Six weeks from today, Americans should be able to vote in what may, many are calling the most important election in U.S. history. The atmosphere of the campaign is far more charged now that Donald Trump and members of his party anticipated replacing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the most liberal voices on the Supreme Court for decades, with an extreme conservative, but any one of several leading issues, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, voter suppression, foreign interference, climate change, the economic collapse, could all make this a pivotal election year. Investigative journalist Bob Henley, who covers national and local politics, economics, and, and policy for public radio, Salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations, has joined us a number of times since the beginning of the year to discuss local and national politics and economics, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to our show now. Hi, Bob. Wow, did you catch that great top-of-the-hour uh, broadcast, the joint news operation? That was some pretty scary stuff there. Well, well, let's talk about some of it. In your latest article for Salon, you note that every campaign pitch is at its root a narrative. What's been the narrative of the Trump campaign? Well, it starts with the notion that the president was in the midst of the restoration of the best economy ever. Mm. And the cruel Chinese flu came and ruined it all. Now we as Americans have to step up and uh, uh, withstand coronavirus, accept the fact that some some certain number of our weaker fellow countrymen may succumb to disease, but that a certain number of dead bodies and infection is what's required as a down payment on restoring our prosperity. So it's a necessary trade-off between deaths and economic growth. Uh, you, You quote, a claim by Richard D. Wolf, a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, that the United States' failure to control the spread of the pandemic and the economic fallout that comes with it harkens back several hundred years in in Europe to the collapse of feudalism. That came as a surprise. How how does that work? Well, uh, Richard Wolf is no stranger to people who listen regularly to this channel, uh, an Uh, economic update. Full disclosure, um, I am a frequent guest uh, on his program. Uh, I think, you know, it, it would it would seem to be a little overwrought until you actually look at the data points that have been brought out in mainstream publications like Time Magazine that look at RAND study, uh, studies that look at since the 1970s because workers' wages declined or stayed flat while productivity increased, that is their ability to make profits for the owners of their companies, uh, that profit went up dramatically, but workers never participated in it. So you're talking about a multi-trillion dollar transfer of wealth that should have been appreciated by a few generations of Americans that now is actually comes in the form of student debt and household debt Meanwhile, the upper strata is getting richer and richer by the second as essential workers increasingly find themselves marginal and disposable. So that's the link to feudalism, in effect. Right. And as, as, as Professor Wolf points out, this, uh, the inability to stop off the, the huge plague resulted in the collapse of the surf circumstance so that they couldn't kick up revenue that kept the whole cartoon going. And I'd submit to you right now that that's where we are at. And we've spoken on this program before about the fact that the decline that's happened as a consequence of the pandemic and the need to, um, uh, to basically slow the economy down and to go into these, these phased in shutdowns, has resulted because people are living so hand-to-mouth to begin with. Remember the Federal Reserve number that prior to the pandemic, 40% of American households would have a hard time coming up with $400 without borrowing it. Hmm. So now, carry it forward now with tens of millions of Americans unemployed and the verge of eviction or foreclosure. The failure of Congress to come up with uh, uh, any kind of thing that really would stop local, city, county, and state governments from going bankrupt while at the same time opening the Federal Reserve to Wall Street 
and to the major corporations. And this, re, this is a replay of exactly the same approach that we had with Bush and Obama's response to bailing out Wall Street at the expense of Martin Luther King Boulevard and Main Street. Hmm. Now, a week ago, it looked like the key issue of uh, that leading up to November 3rd would be the COVID-19 pandemic. How much has changed with the death of Justice Ginsburg? Well, I think we have to parse that out because I think that perhaps people listening to us tonight, today, might, you know, it might, it's a, it looks as a large issue, but I think across the broad swath of America, uh, particularly in the swing states, this question of um, the false choice of uh, your money or your life, your job, uh, or accepting a certain amount of, uh, risk of death or infection of your family, that really has permeated the working class. And so we have this very weird moment where people were told who are essential workers and they were lionized, and in some cases major chains like Stop and Shop gave them a 10% premium pay to go to work. And and meanwhile, now quietly, they've withdrawn those uh, incentives and we see actually workers in a weaker position. We saw um, a national government, particularly uh, in the case of the Republicans in the Senate, actually refuse to continue the $600 uh, supplement for unemployment to drive people into the pandemic workplace. And and this is so this is so resonates with the underlying um, right wing piece of this, which is. The fact that this president believes and always has believed that herd immunity or herd mentality <laughs> as he's called it. Is, is what is going to uh, get us to the other side of this. And this is this Malthusian idea that has its roots back in England, back in the uh, 19th century. This is what Boris Johnson described to until he almost lost his life to COVID. Sure. The idea that we are to spread the disease, and the sooner that we have the surplus population die off, that's a down payment on prosperity. This has echoes in the poor laws that were passed in, in England that led to the potato famine, the idea that by feeding the unworthy poor, they procreate, and we give them expectations about their station. That's what this is. Now, many Republicans seem determined to have a new justice uh, seated before Election Day. Wouldn't it be enough for conservative purposes to have a new justice confirmed before Donald Trump just leaves office? Is it because they imagine that they need a solid right wing majority on the Supreme Court in the event that there's a Trump versus Biden court battle is akin to Bush v. Gore in 2000? Well, I think that for them, this works on all levels. First, it creates a distraction from the rolling um, uh, pandemic, which has claimed 200,000 lives that we know of, and in, and, in, and avoids us drilling down on the craziness that's going on on a daily basis with the Center for Disease Control, where they are changing their guidance. I mean, it's just like the wind. And so it also... Uh, it, it uh, obviates a discussion of important points like the fact that people really still don't understand this disease, Leonard. Um, people think it's a binary thing. You either get killed, and we can live with that risk if we're young and healthy, or you survive it. Well, there's a messier truth which is not getting out there, which is that many, many people will have long-term disability issues for it. And in fact, um, this disease can have an impact on you, even if you remain asymptomatic, surprise, surprise. And a few years down the line, you find out that you have diminished lung and heart capacity. That hasn't gotten out there on MSNBC. You've pointed out that a high percentage of local police officers refuse to wear a mask, although many of their colleagues have died from the virus. Well, this is something that really jumped out at me because I uh, have the honor and privilege of going every year for the chief leader up to uh, the Riverside Fireman's Monument up there on 100th Street on Riverside Drive. And um, it was an authentic response from firefighters to avoid some of the jingoistic speech making at 
considering they lost 343 on the day of the attack and well over 200 now since occupation from occupational deaths related to World Trade Center diseases. And so uh, this year I saw, you know, uh, it takes a significant number of uh, NYPD officers to secure that much of uh, city roadway from uh, vehicular traffic. And I saw, you know, a number of officers without a mask. I saw, you know, a number of firefighters not wearing a mask. Um, there was compliance. Uh, the organizers, to their credit, it's not an official FDNY event. It's organized by as an ad hoc uh, event that's been going on for years now by local firehouses. They did read an order. They did say from the dais, uh, this should not be a day for politics. We are here to pay respect to our fallen brethren, and we don't want to see other people get sick, so we need to wear a mask. And so... With those reminders, they did get compliance. But this is something that um, shows how deeply Donald Trump has affected the ability of this country to act with civic cohesion. And, and that is an enduring part of this dystopian circumstance, which is not getting enough attention. To be fair, this disintegration of consensus about any kind of desire to have collective well-being was afoot for a long time. Mm-hmm. But now Trump has given it a kind of cultural lightning rod so that people have this, this notion that somehow wearing a mask is part of a deep state conspiracy. And it's very hard to shake because we do not have uh, a common set of facts anymore, nor a process by which to, to come up with a shared civic agenda. Senator Charles Schumer was criticized for making a deal to fast-track confirmation of 15 Trump nominations to the federal judiciary just before the battle over Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. Have the Democrats in general been neglecting the importance of the judiciary until just recently? Well, there's such a long list of things that Democrats have neglected to do. And I, I, you know, bring this up at a point where I certainly don't want to see um, uh, Mitch McConnell as majority leader again. But it's important to put this in perspective because, yes, it is true that the Democrats have not been robust enough in uh, playing the kind of hardball politics that the GOP seems so skilled at. And it it is, you know, there were periods of time during the Obama presidency where it was like he was that earnest scholar um, Mm -hmm. who would be set upon in the schoolyard and have the bullies take his lunch money. I mean, that was kind of the way it went, right? And and so he was assuming a certain kind of, um, you know, uh, baseline for civility, and the Republicans were not. Um, But I would say that... What's perhaps more important uh, is the fact that both parties, and I say this having observed this now for decades, systematically, particularly the elites in these organizations, ignored the wide-based deterioration of the public health and um, health circumstance of the mass of American people. And so not, not that I don't put a heavy interest in Dungeons and Dragons ins and outs of the courts, Let's talk about the fact that for three years, the U.S. life expectancy declined in a row as, as debt, medical debt rose, and we closed scores of urban and rural hospitals. That is our precondition that brought us into this moment of the pandemic. And for that, uh, Joe Biden has to own that if he's really going to try to marshal the national imagination, because that's the deficit we have to climb out of. Sorry to take the course about I don't love the Supreme Court, but we've got some really serious issues on the table. Well, well, just to stick with this a moment longer, uh, Joe Biden presided over the hearings that led to Clarence Thomas being put on the Supreme Court. And despite that, uh, Trump is claiming that he's a a Trojan horse for socialism. (laughs) Uh, Would he be likely to name anyone as progressive as Ginsburg? I know it's impossible well, to predict the future. I mean, it is in some ways this this question about um, yeah. I, I would say that there's no doubt in my mind that the universe of people that Biden w- 
would nominate would be preferable. And the one key thing I'd be looking at, which gets scant attention, is the record that that jurist would have when it comes to labor. One of the things that's just underreported because of the disintegration of the media in general is the question of labor rights. And one of the most insidious parts of the Trump tenure that's been underreported with the exception of the chief leader and, and I think uh, democracy now does some of this, but has been his attack on unions. And so I have no doubt that uh, labor unions that are already seen such a deterioration, I mean, consider 50 years ago, 30% of America's workforce was unionized. Now it's down to 10%. And so that would be the key thing. That's the one thing, aside from the important issue of, uh, voting rights and the constellation of other issues that Justice Ginsburg committed her life to. The other one of labor rights and the rights of people to organize is very much um, on the line with what's going to happen with a Trump-McConnell uh, right-wing whack job on the court. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm speaking with Bob Henley. Uh, Bob, you reported last week on the response of municipal union leaders to the possibility that Mayor de Blasio will lay off 22,000 employees. What are the unions suggesting? And do well, they have an alternative way to deal with the massive loss of tax revenue that the city has experienced uh, as a result of the pandemic? Well, um, the, the thing here is that we can also put this in a national frame because what we're talking about here has broader application. Uh, and I know your audience is much larger than New York City. Um, this problem that is happening in New York City, uh, remember, we're ahead uh, a couple of quarters in terms of the public health emergency. So uh, the one silver lining of having gone through this tribulation earlier is that we're also seeing the fallout economically and we have an opportunity to kind of come up with ways to to solve it across the country is estimated one and a half million uh local county and state workers have been laid off um and we expect more to come because around the country depending on the nature of the local response there's been this drop off in um in tax revenues and at the same time surprised expenses related to administering tests and having to stand up the public health response that the federal government failed to do. And so in New York City, this has created a situation where um, there's about 380,000 civil servants. There are uh, about 67,000 folks uh, who are in their early 60s who, if they uh, were provided a couple of additional years of credit, could retire early. Um, this is something the Municipal Labor Committee has been advancing. Uh, Mayor de Blasio, just yesterday I questioned him about it. He began to warm up to this idea. It's not a whole solution, he says, but part of it. And the, and the reason why this idea of an early retirement might have national application is that it accomplishes, um, if you retire folks at the end of their career, you have savings realized in the form of the fact that they are making the most amount of money they'll ever make. And... At the same time, this is the same population uh, who, as detectives, as people working throughout the city infrastructure, have had to be out in the field and have the highest risk of, of exposure or death from COVID. Uh, by retiring them early, then also what you avoid doing is blowing up, because uh, the way civil service law works is the people that are laid off, it's based on last in, first out. So if you just hired on the last few years sure. from starting your career, you get terminated. Well, who are those families? Those families are going to most likely have young children. They're going to be reliant on their job for health care. And strangely enough, they're probably represent a more diverse workforce because the city's made major progress in diversifying the police department and the other city agencies. And so no. the argument of the missile, good. I was going to say, Harry Nespoli, the, the chairman of the Municipal Labor Committee, is the one who suggested that we fire 22,000 civil servants. No, no, Did not that, retired. No, he didn't, didn't he? No, no. I got it wrong. No, he's okay. been trying to advocate. He's been trying to advocate that the mayor won, hmm. uh, put off layoffs until the election because Mr. Nespoli believes the atmospherics uh, will change um, in terms of 
the attitude about the future going, uh, and in particularly in terms of municipal finance, if, if uh, Vice President Biden is elected, that's his opinion. Because the federal uh, government so, won't cut off uh, any funding to New York City because it's uh, they're they're deeming it an anarchist city. Well, the, right. That's a, this this other question is that, and there's there's a the mayor has said he needed to do this layoff of twenty two thousand, unless uh, we should go over the conditions that there was this uh, aid coming from Washington in the form of. Um, local revenue that would go to that we sent from by Congress and signed off by the president that would go to backstop the loss of revenue in the city, counties, and states. In New York State, there's like a $30 billion hole. In New York City, it's around $9 billion over two years. That appears that that uh, federal aid has gotten stymied, and the closer it gets to the election, it appears the, little, the less likely it'll come forward. Then the mayor also asked, that the, he got a $5 billion uh, extension on the city's uh, borrowing capacity in Albany. That seems to be kind of stopped. Then he's also looking to the unions for a billion dollars in savings. Now, this early retirement plan they talk about uh, gets the unions about a third there. It's estimated it would say $300 million a year. So that's where we are. The mayor has uh, initially said that he was going to lay uh, municipal workers off as of October 1st. He has uh, kind of held that in abeyance, seeing if he can make progress. But when I spoke to him yesterday, he said it was still on the table. So that's the picture in terms of layoffs. Well, New York City is home to over 100 billionaires. Could city or state make up budget shortfalls solely through increased taxes on them? Well, here's, here's a couple of things. This is uh, prior to COVID, New York State uh, and New York City had a, a taxation system, which did in, in many ways provide great sanctuary for wealth. Um, while it's yeah. true that um, they, you know, and the governor has been uh, resistant on, on making um, wealthy people uh, pay any more taxes, he's of the theory that this will force folks to leave. Anyone that's really been watching macro finance with any kind of focus uh, and hasn't been handicapped by having to raise money from these people for campaigns, knows that, to a large extent, great wealth has already left the United States. That's part of the problem. So there are a number of ways that local, uh, or particularly the state, could focus on getting a piece of the action, and you refer rightly to this huge uh, expansion in terms of wealth at the very, very top. One of them would be a stock transfer tax, which a number of economists favor. Right now, uh, the stock market is in this disconnected state where the more miserable the American people are, the better things are for the stock market. This seems to be almost an inverse relationship. Uh, this is done, the process of this is through this automated trading, where these great fortunes are made and reinforced and increased by just automatically, robotically trading and flipping stocks repetitively. Um, many financial experts believe this is a destructive tendency, which can taste to the brink of another disaster meltdown, and they suggest having a very tiny, minuscule um, tax for all these transfers, which would have the salutary effect of adding billions of dollars to the Treasury, while giving some break to this insane way that capital is just making capital by investing itself and not investing in the people that sorely need it. Now, how is Governor Cuomo proposing to deal with New York's budget crisis other than imposing a $50 fine on people who fail to wear masks on the New York City buses and subways? <laughs> yeah, I uh, get the, that's that. Yeah. Uh, well, that began last right week. Now, Do you know right, if it's right, even being right. enforced? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I'm I, asking too many questions I, in a row. No, I haven't. Uh, and, and I'm sure once it will, social media will, <laughs> will highlight it. Uh, I would say that it is, it's instructive to compare the way that Governor Murphy, a Goldman Sachs alum, has yeah. responded. His state legislature and the governor signed off on increasing millionaires' tax. At the same time, we see the governor um, pretty resistant, depending on the day. Um, you know, a lot depends on whether or not anything actually ever comes from Washington in terms of backstopping um, the state's uh, loss of revenue. Um, one of the problems here is that um, New York State uh, contributes far more to the federal treasury uh, 
then it gets back. This has been true for a long time. Uh, but as part of that, um, it does also uh, have all these uh, subsidies for corporations. Uh, we have this perverse situation where we have this major homeless crisis with tens of thousands of families and individuals that are homeless. And yet we are, we're in a city where individuals uh, actually use city uh, apartments uh, as a way to shelter all kinds of ill-gotten wealth from all around the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's not uncommon to see n- nobody living in these places. They may be here you know, pre-pandemic just from uh, Christmas to New Year's. But this is a housing stock. That Mayor, this is Mayor Bloomberg's living legacy, if you will, and de Blasio is continuing to some degree, of building all this luxury housing, which has really become an, uh, a way to hide um, the, the, the assets you didn't pay taxes on to begin with. And so it's these kinds of structural things. You have organizations um, that are supposed nonprofits, huge uh, uh, colleges and universities with endowments, uh, real estate holding companies that are aligned with churches that, that don't pay taxes. I mean, this architecture, I mean, this wealth inequality, this 21st century feudalism we live in, didn't just happen overnight. This has come from decades of corruption, where uh, capital got everything and labor was sent packing. And as you mentioned, a common argument against taxing the rich more in one place is that they can declare their residence to be in another place, something that economists call leakage, something that Donald Trump did when he declared his legal residence to be in Florida rather than in New York. So does that mean that the average and, and poor residents of a city like New York will end up footing the bill for recovery? That Well, that has been what's happening. I mean, if you look back, uh, and and uh, people smarter than myself, James Parra, Professor Wolf, well, they can make a case, and, and Stieglitz, I mean, this is an endless procession of people that have done this scholarship. We'll just show you how corporations over the arc of uh, a few decades have stealthily managed to shift the tax burden away from themselves and onto individuals. That's what's been going on. And so we're now, and that lacks the 2017 uh, McConnell and Trump tax cut was just like the final nail in the, in the coffin. And so one of the things that um, people have to keep an eye on is that you have major multinational corporations that started here in the U.S., uh, who were defended abroad by this sprawling military. And yet they park their profits and their assets, their, their valuable, uh, you know, uh, trillions of dollars offshore, right at the time where this country needs investment in, in public health infrastructure, where it needs in, investment in um, the, the infrastructure to deal with global warming and ending the use of fossil fuel. So what they've managed to do is privatize and compartmentalize all the profits they've made and transfer the liability of being on the planet to working people. Hmm. Is the same thing happening in New Jersey, or is Jersey taking a different approach from New York to address its budget problems? Well, I mean, as I mentioned, there was this, um, we have some of the same issues, which is this uh, uh, wages have not kept up with uh, the cost of shelter, uh, 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 child care, utilities. Uh, we do have right now, it would appear, uh, an alignment between the state legislature, uh, which is uh, both the Assembly and Senate is in control of the Democrats, and the governor, who, who seem to be, uh, I would say, hewing to the left of where certainly Governor Cuomo is. I would also say that it's been instructive to watch the way that uh, the CWA, under the leadership of Hedy Rosenstein, has been at the table months ago with Governor Murphy to try to be part of the solution so you don't have quite the same adversarial situation to do in New York between the unions and and uh, public management. So, you know, months ago, the unions worked with the governor to try to do uh, what we would call cash preservation, right? Uh, because they knew that they, I think they understood they wouldn't be getting the support from Washington they needed. And that's the challenge here. You can beat up on Donald Trump all you want rhetorically, but then still at the end of the day, whether you be Governor Cuomo or Mayor de Blasio, you have to have a situation where you have 
to keep the infrastructure and the civil service intact in the midst of a pandemic. And how do you do that? You do that by showing leadership, whether that be doing something more than a symbolic pay cut. You may have seen that uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, last week came up with a, uh, a furlough where he will with go, with, uh, forego pay for a week on his $250,000 salary. Um, but we need some signal from our leadership that shows that they understand the situation that essential workers in the population face. And it can't just be all about being uh, up on Donald Trump, but also figuring out a way to get us through the crisis, even if Washington does not come to our rescue before the election and before, hopefully, the inauguration of Joe Biden. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Bob Henley, I'd like to take a few moments to ask for your support for WBAI. The pandemic has put all independent media in a difficult position, but WBAI is even more vulnerable than most because it's a small public radio station that relies totally on the generosity of its listeners. It doesn't take money from any other places. I used to work at another public radio station where we in effect ran ads. Well, that doesn't happen here. And that's why we're asking anyone who tunes in regularly to Leonard Lopez at large to consider stepping up right now by going to our website, give to WBAI.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help us keep this great station on the air. And one, one great way to support WBAI and give us the kind of continuous support we need throughout the year is to become a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy. And you can do that by making a monthly contribution of any amount. Now, Bob, uh, you know as well as anyone why independent media is so important at a time like this, not only because you've worked in it, but also because you, you've been observing all of the trials and tribulations. Yeah, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to add my voice of support. I, I can't tell you um, just with great pride, I think, you know, I feel having been a part of BAI for so many years, as I say, uh, and that, you know, I've been fired twice, uh, <laughs> which I consider a badge of honor. Uh, you know, something wrong if you don't yeah. get fired regularly from organizations, right? Uh, well, BAI's history has been a roller coaster ride. I know I was here in the 70s. Uh, so, right, right. Uh, no, we shared the same trajectory. And then, of course, we landed for a period of uh, the Funhouse Mirrors at WNYC. But um, I just want to say that throughout this period of time, um, what is struck me is that so many of the issues we're talking about now, uh, whether it be Black Lives Matter, whether it even be uh, the voices like that are in prominence now, like uh, Borough President Eric Adams, right, who's making a run for mayor. Uh, I remember hearing him on BAI um, in his role as an advocate um, for uh, racial justice as a, as a former NYPD uh, police officer. Uh, and then today, you know, when you hear the voices of BIA reporter Julian Jonas just uh, asking Mayor Gablasio the questions that no one else is asking, and then to watch, watch amazingly, as the questions that she raises show up as a basis for, ironically, a story in the New York Post. <laughs> so that's a case where if we're at the table, we're going to drive the conversation. You know, they don't give us credit. So here we are. We are totally independent uh, in a way that pretty much nobody else is. And uh, that also puts us in a bind because, as I said, to, to maintain that independence, we have to rely totally on the support of our listeners. And we hope that um, some of them will become BAI buddies, uh, which uh, involves becoming a member for something like 10 or 15 or $20 a month to be taken out of your credit card or some other account, whatever's comfortable for you until you decide you no longer want to do it. And we've lost a fair number of people, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, they just can't even afford that $10 a month. 
but it really does help BAI because it gives us cash flow. It allows us to plan for the future and uh, know that <laughs> that we may be able to, to pay our bills on a regular basis. Um, but that can only be done if we get the support of our listeners. And that number again is 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to wbaiorg And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Lundertopian at large. Uh, anything you want to add to that, Bob, before we go back to uh, no, our discussion of, of how, how messed up the country and the city and the state <laughs> and, and the metropolitan area are? No, I would just say that I. it's so important. Uh, if you're in a situation where this pandemic found you relatively uh, gainfully employed um, and you're, you're weathering it, um, one way to really pay it forward is to give a little extra because it, I would say it's kind of like a scholarship for the future uh, because so many of uh, the people that are making a difference throughout the media complex are individuals who got their start at WBAI. And that's the kind of conveyor belt you mm. have to keep healthy. It's going to be up to us to do it. My guess is Bob Henley, who uh, has uh, who writes for uh, a number of publications, muckrack.com, The Chief Leader, Salon. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at StuckNation. Uh, or uh, go to his website, stucknation.com. Have I left anything out? No, and it's funny, MockRack is one of these things that's an aggregator of uh, of all my stuff. And so, uh, and because these days I, I work on volume, um, that's a lot of stuff. So I, um, it's one of these things that just keeps it uh, rolling. And then I, um, I also do a lot of work with WBGO, which is uh, the NPR jazz station in Newark. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention them. Now, I really don't want to get into the whole big fight over uh, the uh, replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg because it's being covered so much on television. Right. But I do wonder just maybe one minute or two um, to your thoughts about all of those accusations of, of hypocrisy from uh, some uh, a whole bunch of people, including some who said that they never would allow something like this to happen. Well, I, I watched um, uh, McConnell, uh, Moscow Mitch, to his friends, uh, try to square, um, you know, come up with the logical syllogism. And, and his, the latest way that they boiled it down was uh, it had to do with the fact that this was no problem to do this because it the president, the party of the president was the same and the Senate was also Republican, so it was, it was by no means was it some kind of, you know, he wasn't being hypocritical. I would say that the, the, one of the problems with the way that we're dealing with the aggregated media right now is that we're given a sense about what's important and what's at the top. Um, and so what that does is it kind of skews us from focusing where we need to, particularly when it's so close to an election. So that's part of, that was part of my resistance to your reasonable questions about the court, is mm -hmm. that we're in the middle of something as, as, as crazy. I mean, if you were to just strip out the name of the United States and you listen to that, that great um, newscast at the top of the hour from our colleagues at WPFW, right, you would think it was a Caribbean country, okay? And so... My concern here is that um, we're dealing with something like the president's trying to dismantle the U.S. Postal Service. So the degree to which we take the, the narrative line that what's happening in the Senate regarding the Supreme Court just deprives us, and that was my resistance to you. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's why my response is, I hate to be, it's not that I'm not trying to be difficult, but I do believe we need to bend the conversation, because the issue here is that what they're trying to do is put in a right-wing uh, person who has all that white supremacist baggage that we know that a Trump nominee is going to have in into the court at a time when they the Trump and and DeJoy, the postmaster, have so successfully broken down the uh, the machinery for us to have an election. 
And so I guess I can, you know, come back to that. So that's, that's where, that's where I think we need to focus is on how this is part of their play to be able to one, so greater chaos and, and distract and deflect at the same time, uh, come up with this strategic ability where they can have basically what is a, a kind of uh, internal takeover uh, dictatorship kind of situation and have it blessed at the end by this Jerry Rig court. Well, it's kind of interesting that some of the craziness that we've been seeing recently, Senator Kelly Leffler of Georgia began running an ad yesterday that claims she's more conservative than Attila the Hun. She's proud of that. <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing that's happening because we're in this, um, this echo chamber where we don't have any kind of space where people could get informed. So now we have this very polarized media environment where you gravitate to the media source that's going to validate your, um, your um, presumptions, right? Your biases. So that's what they're doing now. And so it's not like there's any kind of middle ground with this discourse about the objective reality. And so that, and that's, that's a function. That's another thing that doesn't get enough attention, but that's a function of, how we let under the FCC deregulating broadcasting, you know, for a long time, uh, you remember um, the equal time requirements, right? Well, now all of that's gone. And so you have this uh, situation where the, the networks don't have to make any kind of accommodation to make sure people get any kind of representation of the broad views people have. Most people uh, assume that New York City is a, a liberal city, but we but it's split. The 11th district, for example, voted for Trump and Republican Dan Donovan in 2016, although it did shift in the 2018 midterm elections. Uh, and now Max Rose, a centrist Democrat uh, congressman, um, the, the, the district includes Staten Island, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. He's trying to hold a seat against Nicole Maliotakis, a conservative Trump supporter. Um, he's been running attack ads against her. Do you know how that race is developing? Well, I do know also that, um, that Rose is trying to also set himself apart from Mayor de Blasio. So, um, a lot of people are right with, now, aren't they? Right, right, exactly. But and I will tell you that I I think that it's uh, fair to say that Mayor De Blasio will probably add maybe fifteen to twenty percent votes for Trump in New York City, and, and that's because his brand of progressive politics has been wholly inept. And so, and I mean that in terms of the situation that we see with something like the homeless well before the pandemic, tens of thousands of people were homeless. It blew up on his administration's watch. There was billions of dollars spent by nonprofits who were politically connected to address the problem who merely continued it by not doing, and, and the funding wasn't directed to provide shelter. It was created with all this kind of, it just subsidized, I call it homeless ink. Um, you picked a topic where the, the mayor just didn't execute. And, and look at what happened, for instance, with the lead issues in NYCHA. I mean, the way the, the administration lied about the level of contamination. I mean, if it had been done by a Republican or by, like, Donald Trump, people would rightfully say that this was a horrendous racist thing. Um, and then I just you you pick the thing where um, the the mayoralty has just failed in terms of dealing with the basics. This idea of bringing labor labor to the table early on to avoid talks of layoffs. I mean, think about that. You have the mayor talking about potentially laying off twenty two thousand civil servants, including four hundred EMTs. Think of what a crazy, neurotic message this is sending to essential workers. 300 of whom die, many more of whom have their families infected, and even more who will have long-term disability issues. You're telling and them you, you're an essential worker, but you're disposable. And you recently noted new research finds that mortality rates from COVID-19 are lower in unionized nursing homes than elsewhere. Why is that? 
Well, this is such a key part because one of the things is that this pandemic is at its heart a labor story. And and you don't you won't see in, in Bob Woodward's book Rage any reference to the labor piece of this. This is cut out of the entire narrative. And I say that throughout this, what you've seen is unions, because in the public sector they represent about a third of the workforce. Um, and in New York State we have the second highest percentage of union uh, membership. Uh, you had the New York Nurses Association on March 11th um, have a press conference early in March um, predicting the CDC, you may, we've, we've talked about this before, the CDC came up with an interim guidance. Funny how we hear that word guidance now differently. That N95 masks, uh, which is a respiratory protection that nurses wear when they think they're in an infectious encounter. Normally, you would be written up as a nurse if you didn't dispose of an N95 mask after each clinical encounter. The CDC, in an early warm-up for accommodation to Trump and the low inventory supply they had in on hand because of poor planning, told healthcare professionals across the country to not just not dispose of their mask, but adopt it as a pet and put it in their lunch pail and bring it back and forth. And at the time, the nurses predicted two things would happen. They said that nurses would die because they'd become infected, and the hospitals would become vectors for the virus we were fighting. Leonard, both things happened. I can give you another example. Um, the first place that we had reports, we heard in Heathrow that the British uh, public workers that do the airport screening were coming down with COVID. Scroll forward. A couple of news cycles later, San Jose, TSA workers represented by the American Federation of Government Employees come down with the virus. They asked the president of the United States, who, after all, is the manager of a workforce of 2 million people, if they could have PPE, if they could have testing, and they were denied. Throughout the country, in the Veterans Administration, in the Bureau of Prisons, with a footprint throughout the United States, this same conversation was held between the unions and management, and they got the same super spreader advice from Caliglia in the White House. And that's now, how the disease was spread. And New York is the only state that's keeping data secret on nursing home residents who have died in hospitals from COVID-19. Health Commissioner Howard Zucker refuses to release data. And Andrew Cuomo insists that criticism is politically motivated. Uh, so uh, even in liberal New York State, there are uh, these kinds of uh, issues occurring. Well, um, and that's about protecting, right. And But there's, I want to get, that's a very good point. And it comes out to the fact that before the pandemic, um, Cuomo was very resistant to the idea of New York State uh, doing what Assemblyman Gottfried and Senator um, with, with the progressives wanted to, which was universal health care. He was very resistant to the idea of universal health care. And we know that that has created um, this two-tier system where there's for-profit hospitals and the for-profit hospitals shift the vital and essential public health uh, responsibilities onto public hospitals. This was going on for years. And so I have no doubt there aren't aspects of Governor Cuomo's performance he's defensive about, and I'm sure nursing homes is part of that. Uh, We talked about... Uh, uh, people leaving. There's been a major exodus of New York residents during the pandemic. How likely are they to return if public infrastructure is gutted to solve budget problems? For example, the the big crisis in public transportation right now. Education and public transit are are going through serious problems. Uh, Right. And then also add to that this whole question of um, what's happened with basics like the perception about public safety, right? And, and trash collection. I mean, in the chief leader newspaper months ago, Harry Nespoli, who um, leads the, also the sanitation uh, workers union pointed out that uh, the mayor's plans to cut weekend basket collection of trash was going to have consequences. He's the mayor has since rolled back some of those cuts, but uh, this, this is a, this I say is one of these other questions that has a broader application to urban life in America. We went through a period where um, uh, cities like New York, which was you know a leading example of this, 
went through a new renaissance, right? We had, you know, the myth of poetic around sex in the city. It was the place to be. My kids grew up with this. My grown children grew up with this love of New York City. The idea that opportunity and your potential could only be fulfilled in New York City. Well, now this pandemic hits and it exposes all of the inequity that it was built upon. And, and we all get all of, that, of these opinion pieces and news articles is stressing that New York is resilient and still great to reassure New Yorkers. Well, and that has the problem though is that that's got to be followed up on with actions, which means mm -hmm. that right, and you have to give people a sense that you have a new vision for how to come out on the other side of this crisis. And one of the things that um, you know, it's also important to put it in historical context. You and I are old enough to remember a New York City where there were 2,100 homicides, right? And that's in living memory, right? And so we're nowhere near that. I'm not saying that the latest spate of shootings aren't critical and, and don't bode of, of the need to get our arms around it. But the idea that Donald Trump is now calling that anarchy, you know, I think is absurd. And again, it's ahistorical. Um, what, what has to happen is people have to have a sense that there is a cohesion to the city going forward. And for instance, you saw those major business leaders with that letter to the mayor um, uh, talking about uh, the importance of uh, getting, uh, stemming the, 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 the negative public perception that law and order and sanitation is on the decline. But, you know, um, one of the things to keep in mind is that another generation of uh, I think Julian Jonas mentioned this to me back in in the seventies. The titans of industries, you know, they did something. They they paid forward their the real estate taxes that were due the next year. Like and we have to leave it there, Bob. Right? Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Thank you so much uh, for being on our show again. We'll <laughs> we'll continue the conversation in the near future. Okay. All right. Thank you. Hope I wasn't that, too obnoxious. That brings us to the end of today's show. A special thanks to segment, produce, segment producer Hugh Sansom, who prepared today's interview. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. And to visit our website, LondonLocatedLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to send me a comment about something you've heard on the show or somebody say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic. We're asking anyone who isn't already a member of the station to show support online at going, by going to give2wbai.org or by calling 516-620-3602. We're off tomorrow because I'm going to be celebrating my birthday. But please join us again on Thursday when our favorite home repair experts, Al and Larry Bell, will return to take your calls. And we'll see you then.